Would you turn in your scriptures to Leviticus 19? Leviticus 19, I am going to speak today concerning what I told you last week, something you need to know concerning what is going on in our Southern Baptist Convention. If I made mention to you Resolution 9, would any of you know what I'm talking about? Would you raise your hand? When I say Resolution 9, does anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. SBC, Resolution 9. Okay. Well, today you get informed about what is going on within our convention. I want you to hold Rev, uh, Leviticus 19. We're going to begin in verses 9 uh, in just a moment. But one of the biggest threats to the evangelical movement that is going on within our country right now is not only, it's called the social justice movement. Most of us don't even know what that means. When we think about social justice, we often think that well, it's just doing good socially and being just socially and those kind of things, but that is not what is occurring. As you look at what's going on around in our country, what you're seeing with the riots, the rhetoric, the rumblings that are happening throughout every part of our society, it's coming because of a, a, an ideology that is been pervaded and been taught in our schools and our colleges for years and now we're seeing some of the manifestations. People are calling for the tearing down of what they term oppressive symbols. We hear calls for penance, we hear calls for reparations, we are being told that the problems of society are due to white privilege and white supremacy. It's happening, folks, within evangelicalism as well, and it's actually happening in the Southern Baptist Convention, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. Churches and organizations, parachurch organizations, are, have become radical and have become woke to the ills as they see it of society, and therefore they believe that we must be sensitive to those that they consider oppressed even within religious systems and to have others elevated to a place of power and authority. Now, if you don't think so, Google or go to YouTube and check out Campus Crusade for Christ. It's just now one of the, just about totally gone to the left totally to the left when you begin to see some of the things that their leaders and their speakers are speaking of and talking about that don't have anything to do with the gospel but everything about this social justice movement. It's happening within the Southern Baptist Convention. We're seeing people within our leadership, in our convention, in our teaching positions in our seminary wanting to, as our president J.D. Greer said at a conference where he was hosting women about the topic of women pastors and preachers, we need to tear down hierarchical structures. Talking about the church, specifically our convention. That's code word for moving away from what we call complementarianism where we believe that the role of the pastor is for the male, as it's stated in Scripture, to move to what we call an egalitarianism, a position that says women can preach from the pulpits, totally in violation of Timothy chapter 2. We have a proponent of that who has gone totally 
from that, and I don't mind naming names, that's Beth Moore even mocking and letting, mocking people and letting us know that she was preaching in Andy Stanley's church and even tweeted it out. I'm filling the pulpit today in this arrogant style and way that she did this kind of thing. What's happening is we're seeing all leadership positions within our convention, not based on qualifications, but now what they're saying is we need to base it upon diversity. Doesn't matter if you're qualified or not. You just we just need to be diversified. The amazing development of the work uh, of the woke church is is fascinating. Not fascinating, but it's also just a little bit frightening because it's being promoted in our own seminaries, seminaries that we support with our cooperative program dollars. You didn't probably didn't know this, but now at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, one of our own, they have a director of Kingdom diversity and a full program of study headed by a man by the name of Walter Strickland, Dr. Walter Strickland. And what is happening in there is that we are seeing things that are coming aboard within these conventions and our teaching that are using quote unquote analytical tools such as critical race theory and intersectionality. How many of you even heard those words? You know, y'all don't even know what it means. Let me inform you about this. Critical race theory was developed out of legal scholarship according to the UCLA Law Center. It provides a critical analysis of race and racism from a legal point of view. And since its inception within legal scholarship, CRT or critical race theory has spread to many disciplines. The basic tenets that guide its framework are, can be interdisciplinary and can be approached from different branches of learning. Now, here's what it says. Critical race theory recognizes that racism is ingrained in the fabric and the system of the American society. Notice what I said. System. Systemic racism. You've been hearing all this kind of thing. It's woven into our society. Right? Barack Obama even said that it is in our DNA when he was president of the United States. If it's in your DNA, basically that means what? It ain't coming out. It's there and it will always be there forever. Okay? The individual racist need not exist to know that institutional racism is pervasive. Institutional racism. Guess what the church is? An institution. Okay? Understand those kind of things. You need to know that. Okay? Basically, what happens because it's pervasive in our dominant culture, CRT is the analytical lens to that they will use to examine existing power structures. CRT identifies these power structures are based on white privilege and white supremacy, which perpetuates the marginalization of people of color. Let me explain that to you. I am looking at a group of racist, white privileged, white supremacist males that are sitting in this congregation just from the fact that you were born in the United States, according to them. This is what critical race theory is about. So if you're white, 
You're male, you're cisgendered, which basically means you believe that there are two genders, male and female. You're a racist just from that fact. You're absolutely a racist from that fact according to them. So, the CRT rejects the traditions of liberalism and meritocracy, they say, because... Basically, what that does is says that the law is neutral and colorblind, but CRT challenges the, that legal truth by examining everything, including conservatism, liberalism, meritocracy, as a vehicle for self-interest, power, and privilege. In other words, it's pervasive within our society. Everywhere you go, you have some kind of racism. Okay, So even anyone who works hard and can attain wealth and power and privilege, and yet you ignore systemic inequalities, whether you're liberal, conservative, whatever, you're a racist. You are a racist. Folks, if you don't understand this, that is a purely and blatant Marxist theory. And as such... It's antithetical to the gospel, basically. We just have to understand that. It teaches that people of color are inherently oppressed and always marginalized by current power structures due to white supremacy. Now, this is more than just a philosophical ideology. It's a movement. It is absolutely a movement. You may have heard one of the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement say, if you don't change these structures, we're going to burn America down. Another one of their leaders said this, we need to get rid of all statutes of the white Jesus and tear them down. Okay? Now, you didn't know this, but according to them, in their liberation theology, there is a black Jesus as well as a white Jesus, that you need to understand and know these things, okay? This is a group of people who are actively committed to transforming perceived oppressions according to them, okay? It's in, incompatible with the Bible because the Bible teaches us that all are sinners in need of salvation. Critical race theory, however, teaches that the primary aspect of life is a fight for power, that's what it's all about. The privileged oppressors versus the oppressed. That's Marxism. The Bible teaches that our greatest need isn't to identify oppressors. It's basically sin. Our greatest need is the gospel. All people are in desperate need of reconciliation with God. So now you've got this critical race theory who is setting up all these different oppressors and oppressed people, but all the oppressors are male, white, cisgendered people. Now we bring in intersectionality. I'm going to get to my point in just a moment, folks. Just hang with me because you need to know this. What this is, is is a word that describes the type of discrimination a person is up against. This philosophy holds that a person's only true identity now think with me. Your only true identity can be found in the various ways that you are oppressed. That's the only way that you can find identity. 
It's not identity in Christ. It's how you are oppressed that they're saying. In other words, this is viewing the world in terms of discrimination. It's, teaching that, it's a teaching that says a black woman is more oppressed than a white woman because she is black. Further, if you're a black woman and a lesbian, you are more oppressed than the black heterosexual woman. You following so far? On and on it goes. It's called intersectionality because if you think of it this way, say, here is a circle. Let's let that circle represent a woman. Okay? Now, over here, here's this white woman and now we take a circle and say black woman and where it intersects right there, that intersection is one level of oppression that the black woman has. But now we add a third circle to the bottom of it where they cross and where they intersect there because she is now a woman, a black woman, and a black lesbian woman. She now has three levels of intersection right there in the middle of that circle. Right? So now she's three steps away from you. She's three more times oppressed. Now she is not only a black woman and a lesbian woman, she is a poor woman. So now she's four levels of way. Do you see how they're doing this intersectionality kind of thing? And so they're identifying groups in the United States by this and judging them and categorizing them accordingly. But all of these groups are all oppressed by the oppressors. Who's the oppressors? Repeat with me. White, male, cisgendered people. That's how they define it. That's what they're saying about this whole kind of movement. Now, guess what? I know this surprises you. Where did this originate? It originated in 1989 by a political activist and radical feminist, a woman. She was the one that came up with all these kind of things. Even though women outnumber men in the United States, guess what? They are in the minority. Therefore, they are oppressed. So what she says is that, her name is Kimberly Crenshaw, by the way, in order to describe oppression against women on specific points, you've got to look at everything and it can be defined by these overlapping groups and individual classes. In other words, guess what's happened? It's called identity politics. It's an identity politics. And what happens is that you are now being able to say, we've got to get out from underneath these hierarchical structures. Which one? White, male, cisgendered people. This is who we need to get out from under, and everything now needs to become equal. With that stated and with it saying... Folks, people are taking the same kind of philosophy and bringing it into the church. There are folks within the church, leadership in the church, not only in the Southern Baptist Convention, but other denominations who are saying this, that those same people are being oppressed and held back from certain advancement in evangelicalism. And so therefore, we've got to level the playing field is what we need to do. 
This brings us to the next point, just real quickly. Social justice. It is the ideology that people should have equal income and equal outcome across the board. They have to have equal access to health, to wealth, to opportunity, and justice. And what I said before, this is not only a Marxist philosophy, it's a Darwinian one as well. It rose in popularity in the 19th century, Industrial Revolution, Marxism, saying you've got the oppressor, the one who is, that, that owns the business is oppressing all the workers, so he wanted an equality of income. But now there is what we call a cultural Marxism being played out, which basically talks about a redistribution of advantages and resources to disadvantaged groups to satisfy their rights to social and economic equality. So this is not about individuals and individual responsibility. It's about groups. So social justice is an ideology about groups of oppressed people. Identify disadvantaged groups, basically what they do. This is identity politics. And then that group gets to ask... Society, what are you going to do for my group? What are you going to do for my group? Then they get to assess group outcomes, and if they don't like the way the group outcome is, they assign blame for the outcome to disparate groups. In other words, other groups. Mainly, white, male, cisgendered people. Now they're calling for redistribution of power and resources in order to redress grievances. The problem is, with this whole thing, the grievances never stop. They never stop. For example, I'm, I'm looking at my friend Dwayne and his lovely bride, Kathy. Dwayne walks in, and since he's white, male, cisgendered person, she comes in and says, you know, I'm feeling really oppressed by you, Dwayne. You know? And he goes, really? What did I not do? You, you, you didn't clean your, your plate today. You didn't put it in the dishwasher. Oh, what do I need to do? You would think, what would he need to do? <laughs> so he's going to take the plate and he's going to put it in the dishwasher. No, 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 no. Not according to this system. According to this system, Kathy looks at him and says, you owe me washing the dishes completely altogether for five years because I have been oppressed by you. All right? <laughs> There's $100, right. Say, I've been oppressed by you. And he goes, oh, okay. Now he does everything that she says for him to do. Now she comes in and says, Dwayne, the shoes are not in the closet. What do you want me to do? Ten years. Putting shoes in that closet. They've got to be right here in this spot and they've got to be this way. Do you see what happens? Slowly, over time and continually, the grievances continue to pile up over and over and over again. And no matter what you do to address these grievances, they keep happening. So in other words... You're having people within society say, hey, you all 
white, male, cisgendered people, you white supremacists, you racists, need to bow down in front of us and do penance. But that penance will never stop. Because there's always going to be these grievances. So the principle of this is to advance the welfare of the group as far as possible. And so they're saying, of course, this is going to require resource equity, fairness as they define it, respect for diversity. But it also means the eradication of existing forms of social oppression. So... The redistribution of sources, according to these social justice warriors, must come from those who have unjustly gained it. Now, here's the kicker, okay? I see Brother Steve sitting out there. Brother Steve says, he, he, says, he tells me his story. He says, Andy, we are poorer than poor. We were dirt. We were terrible. I started working when I was five years old making snow cones, and I started mowing yards when I was 10 years old, and I started doing this, and I saved all my money. I invested all my money. And because by the time I got out of high school, I had amassed some wealth just by working because I never spent it. I just put it in the, in the stocks and bonds. Now I was able to buy my own business. What they say to him is that you are white, you are male, you are cisgendered, and therefore it was unjust of you to do something like that. You were privileged. Okay, you're so sorry, I know. The point is this. You can claw your way to wealth. You can do all this, but the attainment of your wealth, according to this group, is because you got it unjustly unjustly don't you remember don't you remember one of the biggest cultural Marxists was a president recently who told business owners you didn't build that you didn't build that that's what it came out of this kind of thing now that's just the introduction, folks, and I'm going to get through with this just pretty quickly. Turn to Leviticus. If we have this going on, and it's going on within our society, what is biblical justice? Well, basically, as we're looking at this passage of Scripture in Leviticus chapter 19, it says in verse 18, You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, do y'all remember who said that first? Uh, after this? is Jesus. Second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. So when we're looking at biblical justice, we look at it from this lens is that biblical justice is loving your neighbor as yourself. How is that played out? I want you to look first of all, verse 9 and 10. It says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither you get, shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Here's biblical justice. It's loving through generous giving. Now, let me get you to understand these verses. They are telling us that those who had been given land, by the way, which is not evil, according to the Bible, says... Save some of your resources for the poor and for the sojourner that do not have the opportunity or the wealth to buy the land to produce 
harvest. Basically, it's saying, leave some of the produce for them and so that they then can experience some of your generosity. This is way to love your neighbor as yourself. Folks, don't fall into the trap of when people say, well, loving our neighbors, loving myself, I can't do that in first, unless I first love me. That's the whole self-esteem movement, which is out of the pits of hell because that is not what that verse means. It basically means if you see your neighbor hungry, what would you do for yourself? Feed yourself. So if they're hungry, go feed your neighbor. This is the principle by generosity, you're doing this for them. But the great wonderful thing about this, it doesn't mean that the poor sit around and do nothing and gain welfare all the time. Listen to what it says. It says, leave it to the poor, leave it. Not harvest it, not go pick it, not do those kind of things, and then go deliver it to them. What it says is that you're going to leave it. Now the poor have to utilize their own selves in some industrial fashion to go out there and to pick it. They are involved in the process also. They do the harvesting of the grape and from the other harvest. That's what it's talking about. You are generous with your giving. But you are helping and allowing them to help as well. Giving them a sense of responsibility. Giving them a sense of satisfaction. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 4.28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather him labor, doing honest work with your own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Notice what he's doing. Let him labor. Let him do these things. This is the thief. This is the poor person that has come and has said, I have taken this and now you've caught him. Hey, let him, let him, let him labor for these things. But notice what he says about this. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So that he can put aside something for other people in need. And so the principle for us in biblical justice is, let's put it just in everyday vernacular, set aside some of your money. To help others in need. Set aside some of that money to help others in need. Now let's go through the next part. What is biblical justice? The next part is love through keeping the commandments. Look verses 11 and 12. Listen to what it says. It says, you shall not steal. See, that's, don't do that. That's one of the commandments. Thou shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. See, in other words, don't steal. But notice that stealing is through lying. Notice that next that part of that verse in verse 12. You shall not deal, verse 11, not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. So in other words, don't deal falsely. Falsely. Over and over again in the scripture, it says that the Lord hates an unbalanced scale. In the marketplace, don't sit there and put the finger on the scale when someone comes up and puts the, their produce on the scale and says, this is how much this is a pound. Don't secretly sit there and push down on the scale. So it makes it weigh more so you can charge more. It says, don't do that. That is stealing from that person. Don't do it. So we love and we practice biblical justice through keeping of the commandments. We don't get things done by being false or lying 
or stealing. Verse 13 and 14. We're going to love by not taking advantage of the weak. It says, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. And you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. So in other words, it gives us a biblical pattern, a biblical example of oppression. It's not because they're in minority status according to them according to the social justice warriors. The biblical example of oppression is this, not giving the agreed upon wage at the agreed time. That is not the same as inequality. We went through the book of James when I first came here. As your interim, we looked at that, and it says that in James chapter 5, the rich were holding back wages to the poor. That was injustice. Because of a low wage, because it wasn't because of some racism or privilege or gap between the rich and the poor. The poor were being taken advantage of. God is saying, this is biblical justice. Don't do that. Do not do that. And we're told not to take advantage of the deaf and the blind. This is justice. Not to take advantage of. Why? They come into the marketplace too. If they're blind, there were people that were taking advantage of that not giving them what they wanted. I'll have a pound of this. They couldn't see how much was a pound. And they were being taken advantage of. As we look at verse 15 through 16, it says, Love others through a fair process. Now here is biblical justice as well. It says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Now, we're looking at this thing. We have to understand biblical justice is a fair process, not an equal outcome. Justice strives to apply the law equally. Now, does it always work out that way? No. Why? Because we have sinful people in the world. We have sinful judges. We have sinful all kinds of things. We live in a sinful society. But we are to practice fair process, not equal outcome. Remember social justice. What do they want? Equal outcome is what they are looking for. Equal outcome. Now, here's a point it also talks about. After the verdict of fairness, we're not to go around slandering and not loving people because we don't like the results. Justice in a falling world is not equality of outcome, but equal treatment under a fair law. Look at verse 17 and 18. It says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love the Lord your God. Uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In other words, if you want to practice biblical justice, you're going to reason with each other so as not to harbor anger. We are told we don't need to be harboring anger on the inside and just show politeness on the outside. We have to reason things out, come together, reason things. That 
is biblical justice. Now, in a nutshell, it's to do what's right, to be generous, to be honest, don't take advantage of each other, use fair processes. It is not identifying oppressors. That's cultural Marxism. Now, I've said all this to move this back. What is going on in the Southern Baptist Convention? The social justice axiom has infiltrated some of our seminaries and leadership as well as some of the other convention leadership. I don't have time to go into it all. But I will talk about this just real quickly. Remember I mentioned resolution number nine? It was passed at the convention in 2019. One of the things is this. Resolution 9 was presented by a pastor out of California. If you don't understand the workings of the Southern Baptist Convention, this is the way it is. We always have resolutions. They always come together. We have a resolutions committee. You can submit resolutions throughout the year to the committee. So, for example, we hereby resolve as Southern Baptists that we all want to wear white shoes instead of black shoes to church. Therefore, we're going to look like Pat Boone for the rest of our lives. Okay? And we can pass some kind of crazy resolution like this. It's always this resolution. It has to go to this committee. Then it has to come out of the committee and then be presented on the floor of the Southern Baptist Convention. In 2018, a, a resolution was introduced by a pastor in California that said, whereas we resolve that critical race theory and intersectionality are godless ideologies that have no place in assessing anything concerning the scripture and concerning our society. But by the time it came out of the committee and was presented on the floor, it was absolutely and totally changed. No words like that were mentioned. One of the reasons was because the fella, Dr. Walter Strickland, was on the committee along with Dr. Curtis Woods, another black professor at Southern Seminary, was on the committee who teach kingdom diversity, who teach a courses called liberation theology. Here's what it said. It says, whereas concern has been raised by some evangelicals over the use of frameworks such as critical race theory and intersectionality, and whereas critical race theory is a set of analytical tools that explain how race has and continues to function in society. Now, you remember what we just said about critical race theory? How if you're white, you're male, and all this other stuff, and you're, you're, you're part of the oppression? This is what they are saying. It came out of committee saying critical race theory is a set of analytical tools that explains how race has and continues to function according to this godless ideology that was founded by people who say we are godless, we are atheists, we are Marxists, and we are socialists. It's unbelievable. It says, then it says, whereas critical race theory and intersectionality have been appropriated by individuals with worldviews that are contrary to the Christian faith, resulting in ideologies and methods that contradict Scripture, whereas 
evangelical scholars who affirm the authority and sufficiency of Scripture have employed selective insights from critical race theory and intersectionality to understand multifaceted social dynamics. Now, understand what they're saying, please. Here it is. We've had some people that are evangelical scholars. And because they are evangelical scholars within our convention and within our seminaries, they have employed these to be able to use these to be able to determine all these multifaceted social dynamics. And so therefore, since we've employed these, these things are teaching us some good things about society. But they go on and say, critical race theory and intersectionality alone are insufficient to diagnose and redress the root causes of social ills that they identify which result from sin. Yet these analytical tools can aid in evaluating a variety of human experience. Folks, what happened at that, and, I, and it goes on to, to say absolutely nothing of what the first resolution was stated by the pastor out of California. Here's what's happening. They've totally rewritten it to say we've got to use these as analytical tools. But they are godless ideologies. But here's the point, and I know I'm running out of time on this to get this, you to understand this. This is becoming pervasive in some of our seminaries that we are supporting and that we are paying for this kind of leadership through our cooperative program. As we're speak, I'm speaking today... More Southern Baptist churches have left the convention over this issue than any other time in the history of the Southern Baptist Convention because it's falling, our th our, falling on deaf ears. For example, Dr. Tom Askell stood and said, we want to make, during this meeting, I want to make an amendment. And he put back into this amendment, let us say that these are godless ideologies that are being used at the same time as Scripture is, and Scripture is sufficient for us to determine what's going on in society. And Dr. Curtis Woods, who was the chairman of that committee, also one who is a big social justice guy and a professor at Southern Seminary, declared himself, oh, that's an unfriendly amendment. And it was shot down. There was no debate. In fact, during this time, Resolution 9 and Resolution 13 were left, through Resolution 13, were left on the convention floor with 31 seconds to debate it, and they wanted to lump it all together. The messenger said no, they took this, and when they did it, they did not give any kind of definition in this debate from the committee, what is critical race theory, what is intersectionality, and it barely passed because most of the people, when you explained it to them afterwards, the messengers that went there, they were, what? What? Tell us that again. Now, folks, this is, this is occurring, and I wanted to bring it to your attention because it's going to be coming up again at our next convention, if there is going to be a convention. And it's going to show, you know, we're going to try to strike this down. But here's the point. I don't want you to believe me, okay? I don't want you to believe me. I want you to... Go look for yourself 
because it has been discovered that these professors and some of those leaders over them have said things that have been captured on video from their, from their own mouth talking about how critical race theory and intersectionality needs to be continually used to evaluate all the hierarchical structures in our society and within our churches. Okay? There is one with this Dr. Strickland who is on this that has a video that you can go to. In fact, if you go to Enemies Within the Church or you go to Conversations That Matter, you can write these things down, look them up, understand it. He is talking about some of the things that shaped his theological teaching. And he says that some of the things that he embraces as part of his theology came from James Cone. James Cone, okay, ready? James Cone discipled Jeremiah Wright. Y'all remember Mr. Jeremiah Wright? You know, pastor of Barack Obama. He wrote the textbook called Black Liberation Theology. And in that... He says that he has taken the civil rights movement of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, his, his power structures, and put them together and formed it, even saying that the cross of Jesus Christ is all about victims. So the gospel is all about victims. And he disparages, disparages white people. On the other hand, this same professor, Dr. Strickland, states in this video that he is one of his favorite theologians is J. Deontis Roberts writing from Liberation and Reconciliation. Notice what he says though. I got a quote from that book. It says, Black theology will need to be formed, be informed not only by the Christian faith but by the explorations into the unconscious by Sigmund Freud and his associates as well as the analysis of social and economical and political ills by Karl Marx and other social philosophers. Whatever insight regarding human nature may result when they be taken up into Christian understanding... And trans let me read it again. Whatever insight regarding human nature may result will then be result from studying Marx, from studying Freud, will then be taken up into Christian understanding and transformed by it. It appears to me that the black theologian has much to learn from existentialism as he or she, she seeks to develop a full understanding of human nature. He also goes on to say the Bible is a source for theology, uh, as a source for theology is to be taken seriously but not literally. Our understanding of the gospel is political. Political. And according to these professors, that, that is what the gospel is. And that is what they believe. In fact, the provost from Southern Seminary is on tape saying during an interview, and he's white, He's the second in command at Southern Seminary. I am a racist. I am a white supremacist. And I will struggle with racism and white supremacy until Jesus takes me to heaven. Okay, here's what I want you to do. Or let me explain this. Why is this so important? It's our seminaries that produce our next pastors, dear friends, and leaders. If the gospel becomes what they want it to be, this social justice, cultural Marxism, it will plague our pulpits for years to come. So what I want you to do, 
write, get a pen in your hand, pencil in your hand, is this. Go to Conversations That Matter. This is by a young man who was a graduate from Southeastern Seminary. When he began to hear some of these teachings and go into some of these classes and reading these books that were required, began to sound an alarm of what was happening. You can go to founders.org and look at the film By What Standard, and you'll see some of these interviews. Watch the trailers of called Enemies Within the Church. Go to that one, Enemies Within the Church. There you will see the testimony of a tenured professor, one of three, who was just recently let go from Southern Seminary because they, they signed a statement on social justice that was put out by a group of pastors in reaction to social justice movement. Conservative pastors, black and white and brown, coming together and say, this is what we believe the Bible teaches. Three of those professors signed it. All three were fired from Southern Baptist Seminary, and they were told this is because of the COVID situation and the lack of funds coming in. And yet they were the only ones that were let go because they signed this kind of thing. There at Enemies Within the Church, you can see one of the professors who was asked to sign, all three of them are asked to sign non-disclosure agreements. Now, why would they want to have a professor sign that if, they, if there wasn't something going on behind the scenes? Two of them refused to sign it and began to state what had been happening, why it's been happening, and you can hear it from their mouth of why they were fired and the events late, uh, uh, that led up to it. Go to Sovereign Nations on YouTube. They had a social justice and the gospel conference. And you can begin to see some of these things because I don't want you to take my word for it. I don't. I want you to listen to it and see what is going on within our own convention and what is happening. So here's the thing. There's three things I want us to understand. Three options, really. Okay? I want you to think about I want you to pray about. I am going on vacation Taking, taking a few days off. Brother Phillip's going to be here. Brother Seth, they're going to take care of everything. Everything's going to run smoothly. But I want you to contemplate because when we come back, we'll probably do some more discussing about this. We have three options. Do nothing. Yeah, do nothing. Let's, let things go on as they are and there will be no problem. God's in control. Everything's taken care of. Yada, yada, yada. Or, second thing, we can fight once again, to recapture what is being overrun. We did that in 1979 and 1980, where we had to fight a tremendous drift in liberalism within our convention and within our seminaries. We started electing conservative pastors who actually believed in the inerrancy of Scripture, and they would begin to take over, and they can place people on the committees and do what they did so that it would remain conservative. We can fight once again. In fact, this is called for the Conservative Baptist Network has been recently formed of pastors and lay leadership to be able to fight this kind of thing. Third thing, we can leave, which many, many churches are doing. So those are some of the three options that we have. That is some of the things I'm going to put before you today. Go find out these things for yourself. See what is happening with our country. It is our celebration of Independence Day, our 4th of July. 
But folks, understand this. There are things going on within our society that is striking at the very foundations. And if this foundation crumbles, where is it going to go? What is going to happen? Let me tell you what's going to happen, just real quickly. If this catches hold within our society and with all our leadership and even within our election and in, into, into our political leaders, which it already is, but it's getting more and more and more and more to the left, guess who is going to become one of the oppressors? Christians. Christians. You are the oppressor. You are the oppressor. You won't let a, you know, a, 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 a white female lesbian come in and work at your church. You're, you're an oppressor. You won't let two gay men come and ha have services in your church. You are an oppressor. And laws will be passed, and you will be held accountable. That's the future if something is not done. So something to pray about, something to research, something to think about. And we'll come back together when I'm back with you in a couple of weeks and we'll continue to talk about the options that we have before us. All right? Join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, thank you again that we can open your book to see what biblical justice is and help us as a people to do what's right, to be honest, to be generous, to be loving our neighbor as we would ourselves. Lord, let us recognize where these godless things and the are being resurrected. These godless ideologies that are coming and attacking us help us to prepare our minds and our hearts for the battle ahead. Father, I pray that as we put on the armor of God and stand against the forces of evil that we'd recognize this is exactly what this is. It's evil. So, Father, help us. Help us in this battle. Lord, we pray for our country. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would send revival that you would send revival to this place. Lord, that Christians would realize that the only way for a changed society is changed hearts. Help us to be vigilant about sharing the gospel with people around us. Lord, and throughout this week, I pray, Lord, you open our eyes to what is going on in our society. Help us to pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.